two main places here this this morning, but we're starting a new series. Kind of we're winding down the last one, but haven't been getting too many comments or questions on the last one. So usually that means the interest in it is faltering, slowing down a little bit. So we're going to be moving over to a new one. We're going to get into a series here today that I actually thought of about six years ago, and we kind of put some of it on the tail end of another series. But I always wanted to get back into this and to really go into the Word and to look at this because most of us have asked questions of God. We go to prayer and we ask questions of God. We go to other people and we ask questions. We see things that are happening around us. We see things in the world. We see things with ourselves. We see things in our family, uh, some of which we don't understand. And when we don't understand something that we see, we ask God questions about it. And we fire off a lot of questions. How many have ever gotten hit with questions from your kids when they were growing up? Or, or if you were a kid, you're asking a lot of, a lot of different questions. And the children have a way of, of asking questions. We put a comic in your bulletin there today um, about that. I don't know if all you realize this, but usually we try and get the comic and the quote to work somewhere around what we're doing here on Sunday. And so you may see a few Family Circus ones coming up here because uh, they do a lot with, with questions. But you know, if you can get mom at a particular time when she is distracted and you ask her the right question, you can get what you want a whole lot faster than if you, than if you don't. That can be a thing that that comes out. But one of the most common questions that we know of that people ask, and we usually ask it when we're, when we're small, we usually ask this question when we're little, and we're not as in control of, of all the things, and you have all heard this question before. In fact, this is the same question I brought up to you when we were covering this uh, a long time ago, is you are on a trip to go somewhere, and on the way there, the question comes up from the back seat. Everybody know what it is? Are we there yet? It's not a fun question. It's not a question that we like. Usually, uh, the first time we'll answer it, you know, no, we're not there. How much longer? <laughs> and it's always asked in such a way that I'm being inconvenienced. Uh, I'm sitting here in the back seat. I'm waiting to get to the place that we we're supposed to be at. And uh, just getting kind of tired of waiting. doesn't matter if mom and dad are taking them to a place that they're really going to enjoy. And mom and dad are, are sacrificing some things to be able to accomplish this. What matters right now is we are not there. I don't like where I am. And I want to get to where we are going. And so this question will come back a number of different times. Are we there yet? Very often we ask questions very similar to this to God. Now some people have taught, and erroneously so, and you have may have been taught this, you may have been taught this in a secular environment. You may have been taught this in a religious environment. It doesn't matter. Wherever it is that you were taught it, this is most definitely wrong. And as long as you have this in your thinking, it will hinder you in your spiritual walk. The question is, or the thinking is, there are no bad questions. That is very false. You can get yourself into more trouble by asking a question. You can get yourself in more trouble with God by asking a question. Just like with faith prayers, just like with doubts, some things are better left unsaid. Don't speak them out right away. Give yourself some time. Figure it out. You all know the very first question recorded in the Word of God led to a very bad place. 
Everybody remember what that question was? Has God truly said? And that, got, that started the whole world into trouble. There are a lot of bad questions. Unfortunately, there's a lot of Christians asking them. So we want to help you in this series to understand what makes a bad question. What makes a good question. There are questions that get God's attention and there, believe me on this one, I'll show it to you in the Word, but I'll just tell it to you now. There are questions that God ignores. He will pay no attention to it at all. No, He will not tell you, look, that's a bad question. He will not tell you that. There are some things you are expected to learn and to know. Just like when you have that child in the back seat and they're little, after the first two times, how many of you just ignore the question? I'm not answering that. I already answered that for you before. And then when they get to a certain age, you don't expect that question at all. So we're going to take a look at some of these things in here. When you look at the question, are we there yet? This is really just a lazy question. It's usually said in an irritating voice. I do nothing but sit back and wait for others to do all the work to figure out the answer to my question and answer me. I do nothing. It is a lazy question. God does not like lazy questions. Now, I gave you some qualities of a bad question. We may add to this, but there here's some qualities of a bad confession. First off, a bad question, one of the qualities is dissatisfaction of where I am. Dissatisfaction of where I am. We will show you some scriptural references, some people that were in these positions who said these things. But I'll just throw this one out to you just so you know that they, they do exist. Dissatisfaction for where I am. I want to go back to Egypt. Why did God bring us out here to this wilderness? Did He just want to kill us? Dissatisfaction with where I am. Should they have been dissatisfied with where they were? Did they have any reason? Justifiable reason? God covered them in the day. God covered them at night. God provided food. God provided water. God provided protection. In fact, their clothes didn't wear out. Their sandals didn't wear out. And they were dissatisfied. Unthankful. There's number two. Unthankful for the work done on my behalf. How many times are the children of Israel unthankful for the work done on their behalf? They're over there grumbling and complaining because manna fell and we got this manna again. They're up there grumbling and complaining and yet the fire, the pillar of fire at night is keeping them warm. Here's the third one. Impatience to get somewhere. We want to be at the promised land now. I don't, we don't want to wait. We want to be at the promised land now. We deserve to be at the promised land now. God promised we would be at the promised land and we're not there yet. God's trying to make them ready to get there to the promised land. They didn't spend that time getting ready when they got there. Were they ready? They were not. Impatience to get somewhere. When you have somebody impatient in the back seat of the car and you're on a trip, how many know that makes the trip very unfavorable? You don't like the, the impatience. 
that is there. Here's the third one, not accepting responsibility. A lot of times we ask questions of God and we are not accepting responsibility. How many times did the children of Israel complain about a judgment that came upon them because they were disobedient, but they claimed no responsibility for it at all? Bad questions are filled with things of not accepting responsibility. Bad questions, here's the next one, loaded with assumptions. Bad questions are loaded with assumptions. Did the children of Israel not assume that God led them out to the wilderness to kill them? That was not the case. But they, left, they had that assumption. And they, they spoke it out in their questions. But bad questions are loaded with assumptions. If you don't know something, don't assume it and make a question out of it. Find out what it is. Learn it. There's another one. Lack effort to learn before forming a question. A bad question lacks effort to learn before forming the question. Good questions are based on knowledge. That's what you've got to do. Good questions can be based on failure. They don't have to be based on success. How many inventors raised the question based on a failure until they could come to the place where it would succeed? How many times did we have the failure on the light bulb before we finally had success? What happened after each one of those failures? We have to ask a question. All right, that didn't work. I wonder if this will work. I wonder if this will create what we need. I wonder if we need to do it this way. And you go out there and you test it and it didn't work. All right, is the new thing I did not working? Is the old thing that I left in there not working? You got to ask questions. But questions need to be based on knowledge. Take some effort. Learn before forming the question. Here's the last one I gave you. Voice, bad questions. Voice what I don't know instead of what I do. Bad questions voice what I don't know instead of what I do. I'm sure no one here has ever asked a question like this, but maybe you can think of some people around you that have done so. God, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what I did to deserve this. I don't know what's going on that all this stuff is happening to me. But I just don't think it's fair that you do all these kinds of things to me. It's based on what I don't know. Stop talking about what you don't know. Get out there and find out. Remember when, when the children of Israel went up to Ai and they lost? And Joshua went back before God? How come we lost? How come we lost? What does God say? No, it's easy. You sinned. Now get up and get going. He's expecting them. They, they should have figured this out. They should have known. God doesn't hand us all the answers. Sometimes we need to go out there and check some of these things out. Here's a question. Well, I'll get to that here in a minute. The questions we might ask ourselves is, why hasn't blank happened yet? Why don't I have blank yet? Now, this is a question of unbelief. That is an unbelief question. It sounds like you're believing God for a thing, but you're not. You are in unbelief and you're just vocalizing it in such a way that a lot of Christians will say, oh, well, you know, God is always working. God is working where you can't see it. And they try and encourage you in that. 
but there's unbelief. How'd that unbelief get in there? Because your question rose up and you gave voice to it. Why don't you have it yet? Shouldn't you have it by now? Doesn't God know you need this? I thought God's Word provided for this. Those questions come up and we give voice to them. You're going to get yourself in trouble. This is an unbelief question. It has qualities of doubt, self-righteousness, and a complaining tone. When you start asking, why don't I have this? You have qualities of doubt, self-righteousness, like God should be doing this for me. He doesn't know who I am, how much I deserve this, and a complaining tone. Remember Abraham? That's a... Actually, go over there and read it. I didn't write this in your outline, but it's Genesis 15, 1 through 3. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus? And then Abram said, Look, you have given me no offspring. Indeed, one born in my house is my heir. What's his question? Why haven't you given me an heir? God says, you're my, I'm your exceedingly great reward. He says, oh yeah? Where's my heir? Where's my offspring? Where's the one who's supposed to inherit all this? Where's the one you're supposed to bring the blessing through? Why is he vocalizing this to God? Because he's been having these questions come up on the inside. Hey, if God really promised this to you, shouldn't you have this by now? If God really said this and God really meant it, shouldn't Sarah have gotten pregnant by now? Maybe God has changed his mind. Maybe you disqualified yourself. Maybe God's not able to do it. All these kind of questions come up. Now, if you were God, would you answer these questions? Let's turn over to the book of Daniel. Before we look at all the negative ones that are in the Word of God, because there's a lot of negative questions in the Word of God, <laughs> let's take a look at one of the most positive ones that I can think of. I go back to this chapter often just to get encouraged in the area of questions. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, the lineage of, of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, the reason he find that out is in the book of, Je of, um, of Jeremiah, in the book, in the prophecy, God says 70 years. Somehow Daniel missed it. Somehow Daniel didn't see it. It wasn't really anything you had to try and add up or figure out. He came right out there and said 70 years. And he saw that finally and it dawned on him, oh, wait a minute, that's 70. We're, we, we've hit the 70 years. And so as he was studying this in the Word and as he's going over the prophecies that were dealing with him that came from Jeremiah, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolations of Jerusalem. Then I set my face toward the Lord God to make requests by prayer and supplications with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. Now, let me ask you a question. This, is, this, this will be important for us as we go on here. In the area of fasting, how long do you have to go without food in order to be counted as fasting? 
Would you call it fasting if you went without food for one hour? Would you count it as fasting if you went without food for two hours? Would you count it as fasting if you skipped a meal? Would you count it as fasting if you went without food for an entire day? Where is it that we draw the line? What is What becomes fasting? It's important for you to keep an eye on that because there's a whole lot of folks who think that his fasting had something to do with this. Then I set my face toward the Lord to make requests by prayer and supplication with fasting, sackcloth, and ashes. What's he asking? I'll, I'll give you a summary of it. What happens now? The 70 years are completed. So now, what is going to happen? Now, how many think that God knows what's happening after the 70 years? How many think that God knew when He gave Jeremiah the prophecy that 70 years are determined for your people? 70 years, the land will lay desolate to make up for all. And the reason was, it's very clear in Jeremiah, very clear what He says is, there's going to be uh, one year for each of the ones that you did not allow the, the land to have its Sabbath. Every seventh year, they're supposed to have a Sabbath. You guys didn't do it. One year for each of those years. And 70 years was needed in order to make that up. So 70 years were determined that the land was going to be desolate. He said, my land will have its rest. And since you wouldn't give it to it on the end of every sixth year, do it on the seventh year, give it rest. Since you wouldn't do it, I'm going to, it's going to have it now. That whole place is going to be desolate. Nothing's going to grow in there. And the place was desolate. No one, no one wanted it. Because nothing would grow. Used to grow. Used to be a land of milk and honey. Now nothing's growing. This is not the only time that it happened. It also happened when Israel got kicked out the second time. When Israel got put back in, it became a land that flourished. That's why during all those years, no one wanted the land. When Israel took it back over, everyone wants it. Because it is an extremely prosperous land. Is very fruitful because Israel is back in there and God is blessing the land. But it was desolate before that. No one wanted the land. No one was fighting over it. Now suddenly they, they are. So where did this question come from? What happens now? It's born of study in the Word of God. That's the first thing. He was studying in the Word of God. He didn't just come up with a question, are we there yet? Is the exile able to be over yet? Have we finished the plan? He didn't do that. He was studying in the Word of God. He saw 70 years were determined for this punishment. The 70, he counted the years. It's been 70 years. So it's born of studying the Word. Second, it comes from a level of understanding. There are certain things that Daniel understood because he had studied other things. He understood God. He understood the uh, uh, judgment coming upon the land, why it came upon him. He understood a number of years that were specified by the Word of God. And the third one is belief in what God has said. So this question came from studying the Word, from a level of understanding that Daniel had, and from belief in what God said. He believed that when he saw Jeremiah write these words, he said, I believe that God will do exactly what he said. He does not form this question. God, if you said 70 years, why are we not there yet? 
That's a question. Seems to be asking the same thing, but it's framed out of doubt. His question is framed out of belief. This question does not come from why has it, why has this not happened? Why has this happened in the first place? He didn't do any of that. Good questions are more interested in what happens now than why something happened in the first place. A good question is not trying to figure out, all right, why did that happen to me? Why did that come upon me? A good question is, here I am, what happens now? What are we going to do now? Just like if you were driving around and all of a sudden your tire became flat. What's the most important thing right now? Getting the flat fixed. You have a couple of options. Can I do the fixing the flat myself? Can I put the spare tire on? Is that something that you can do? If you determine, yes, there's something I can do, then we go into the back of the trunk, we pull out the spare tire, we pull out the jack, we get everything going, we start to work on getting done. That's the question we have to ask. What are we doing now? A useless question is, I wonder why it went flat. <laughs> you could spend all your time trying to figure out why the tire went flat. That's not going to help you get out of your situation. What's important right now is, what do we do? We got to get that car going again. We got to get that flat fixed. Uh, how it became flat, I don't know. I remember one time I was going home uh, on a Wednesday night. I was heading home from, from church and uh, driving on home. I was on the 202 bypass and all of a sudden I was getting a lot of noise out of the uh, passenger side front tire. And hearing this noise, I said, man, that's a, that's a lot of noise coming out of there. And uh, it didn't last for more than a minute and then bang! <laughs> now, you know, you're on a truck when that, when that sucker goes bang, you don't just go down a little bit. Some of those tires they have out there, I mean, they're that big. They're not even an inch. I'm wondering, boy, you hit a bump. How's that work on that? I've never been in a car that only has a tire about an inch. You know, my tires, they're big tires. When it goes flat, you go down. You're not wondering. I had that one time with my probe. The thing went flat. I didn't know it went flat. <laughs> I'm still driving around. I didn't know it went flat. It wasn't quite an inch, but it was down low. And, um, oh, I think my tire's flat. And so then we had to, to fix that. But here, bang, and I'm, I'm down. And so uh, the thing about my truck is the jack that comes with it is not tall enough to get the truck up off the ground to um, be able to get the tire off. I've found that out. <laughs> <laughs> but that's okay. I have a service that I call. So I called them on up, and they came, and they, they uh, brought me the whole rig, and they towed my truck over to a place to, to get it fixed. And so... Um, uh, we were we, they were working on it. First thing is prior, priority. First thing we got to do, get the tire fixed. We got to get that tire fixed. And so we we worked on doing that. Uh, after we got the tire fixed, you know what I asked? Why did it go flat? But I didn't really care about that until we got the tire fixed. And um, yeah, it was something big. It was something uh, we don't know exactly what it was, but uh, it was nasty. Blew that tire up. But the most important thing when you're in a situation like this is what happens now? Daniel wants to know what happens now. Sometimes we can get um, 
that an attitude, you're not going to get a good question out of this. Why is God doing this to me? You ever spend time in prayer to figure out why God's doing something with you? If you do that, I don't, you're not going to get the answer that you want. Now, if you, um, if you're disciplining one of your kids, if you can think back to the days when your kids were young, or if you can think back of it now, whatever it might be, and you discipline the kids, and you, you do, maybe you do a timeout. Maybe you did a spanking and a timeout, whatever it might be, and the kid's in timeout, and the kid is saying, Mom, Dad, why are you doing this to me? What is your answer? Come on, every parent has the same answer. We all learned it from our parents, and we pass it on uh, sort of a rite of passage. We just got give it to the next one. Why are you doing this to me? What do you say? You did it to yourself. <laughs> right? Isn't that the answer we give them? You did it to yourself. Isn't that the answer we got? What do you mean you did it to yourself? They didn't spank them. They didn't put themselves in timeout. They did the things that put them in that position to receive those things. So if something happens in my life, either I did something, maybe it's an attack, maybe somebody just did something stupid, whatever it might be, whatever it is, but don't go blaming God for it. Don't be going, well, God, I guess you got some reason for putting this upon me. Why is God doing this to me? Well, good questions will not come from doubt or distrust of God. You have doubt or distrust, you have a question, it's not going to help you. When Adam and Eve were in the garden and, the, and they got that question, has God really said? That is founded on doubt and in distrust from God. God is trying to keep something from you. You should have it. It would be a benefit you. Now, let's take a look at his prayer. And I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments. Well, that doesn't sound like doubt. How many of you have ever been in a situation that you didn't like and start off your prayer this way? You were in a situation, got fired from your job, got betrayed by a friend, got robbed of something that you thought was yours, and you come to God, and you say, God, I don't understand why this happened to me. I thought you were protected. I was, ta- I was quoting to Psalm 91 just this morning. We don't start off with, and I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, Oh Lord, great and awesome God. How many want to do that? Bad thing happens to you. You're in a bad place. Something not so nice happened. And you start off your prayer, Great and awesome God. I want you to think back and I want you to, to count on your, on your hands. Just start counting on your hands. How many times that you were in a bad situation and you started the prayer out, Great and awesome God. Everybody count. We don't start it off that many times like that, do we? Great and awesome God who keeps His covenant and mercy with those who love Him and with those who keep His commandments. That does not sound like, why did you let this happen to me? Verse 5, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. We have it. We have done it. Now understand this, Daniel hasn't done this at all. Daniel followed God in his youth. Daniel followed God when he got to Babylon. 
Daniel continued to follow God no matter where he went to. He continued to follow God. He would not back down. He wouldn't back down facing the lion's den. He would not back down from obeying God. But look at what he says. We. He doesn't try and say anything like, well, I understand why he did it on the rest of these jokers. But I don't understand why I got put in there with them. He didn't do that. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. We have done it. We have done it. So you're going to see here in Daniel's prayer, he proclaims God's goodness and his faithfulness. And our problems are our fault. Got to understand, our problems are our fault. When I was out there on the side of the road, 10 o'clock at night, waiting for a tow truck. It's not the place I wanted to be. My wife probably had dinner waiting at home. I don't usually get dinner until I get home on Wednesday night. Probably had dinner waiting over there. I'm over here on the side of the road. I could be saying, God, I was, I was serving you all day, studying, getting the things ready, and this is how you repay me? Never dawned on me to even think that. I'm, I'm thinking, boy, was there something I should have been listening for, something I should have heard in that tire that it was making this, this noise before him. Boy, I could have, maybe if I could, I could have prevented this, had not had this happen. Only because I've learned not to do it that way. O oh Lord, righteous, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shame of faith. Boy, you've ever gone before God when you feel like you're on the, the wrong end of the deal? Well, you're righteous. I'm not. Hmm. This, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, those near and those far off in all the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed against you. O oh Lord, to us belongs shame of face. To our kings, our princes, and our fathers because we have sinned against you. This is no token just, well, I understand it's my fault, but... He doesn't do that. He's letting them know. I know what we did. I know. We didn't just do it a little bit. We did it a lot. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, though we have rebelled against Him. We have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God to walk in His laws, which He set before us by His servants, the prophets. Yet, or yes, all Israel has transgressed Your law and has departed so as not to obey Your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. See, he knew the word. I know that this penalty that came, on, came upon us, I know this penalty we are operating under, it came upon us because you said this would happen in your word. You have not departed from your word. You are righteous in what you're doing. We're the ones that are not. And he has confirmed, verse 12, his words which he spoke against us and against our judges who judged us by bringing upon us a great disaster. For under the whole heaven such has never been done as what was done to Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come upon us, yet we have not made our prayer before the Lord our God that we might turn from our iniquities and understand your truth. 
Therefore the Lord has kept the disaster in mind and brought it upon us, for the Lord our God is righteous in all the works which he does, though we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made yourself a name as it is this day, we have sinned and we have done wickedly. So he talks about the great things that God has done in this prayer. How many times have you felt like God's not coming through for you? Something that you need has not come just yet and you're going to talk about in prayer all the good things, all the wonderful things that God has done? How many of us can think how many times that, that's happened? Let's count them again. Ready? We don't tend to do that, do we? We tend to look at all the good things that we have done that God should notice and therefore not have put this on us. But what he's doing is he's counting all the good things that God has done and all the bad things that his people have done. Verse, uh, where are we at? 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem, and your people are reproach to all those around us. Now therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications. And for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. O oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city, which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds but because of your great mercy. Oh, boy, we got to learn that one. We don't present what we're asking for because of what we have done for your kingdom, because of our faithfulness. We're not doing it for that reason. We're doing it because of your mercies. We understand we deserve the judgment. Well, we're asking for your mercy. Oh, Lord, hear. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, listen. And act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. He asked for God's forgiveness. He asked for God to look upon this nation. He asked for God's mercies to restore this nation, to restore Jerusalem, to restore the worship that was there, to restore his people. Now, we just read all that and... Um, I don't know how long that would take if we just sat down and, and read it from beginning to end, but I don't think it's going to take more than two or three minutes. Would you? So then let's move on to verse 20. Now, while I was speaking, praying, and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God, yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen, in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Verse 23. At the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. When was the command given to send the answer? 
at the beginning of your prayer. At the beginning of your supplication. If that happened at the beginning of his supplication, how much fasting did he do? How much did the sackcloth and ashes have an effect? Had no effect. What had an effect was his prayer. His prayer. His prayer got God's attention. How would you like to have a prayer that God the got God's attention so much that before you were finished praying, God sent the answer. That's pretty good response time. It said in verse 21, being caused to fly swiftly. He was coming fast. Verse 22, and he informed me and talked with me and said, O Daniel... I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand the vision. You are greatly beloved. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now, when we spend time in the end times, we've, we've gone over each of these uh, aspects of things, of what he was saying. Not going to spend all that kind of time on it here. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. What is seven plus sixty-two? Not a trick question. 69. He has has first said, 70 weeks are determined for your people. 7 and 62 total 69. There shall be 7 weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even troublesome times. But this was until Messiah. When Jesus comes... The people have counted down the years and they know we are at the time for Messiah. They knew they were around week 69. That's why they're looking for him. That's why they're expecting him. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off. Now that's after the 7 weeks and then 62 weeks. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. Now, there was confusion on this for a lot of years uh, on the uh, on this part. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Most times this has been interpreted as Rome. And so we have been teaching in in the church circles for years that Rome was going to come. Rome was the revived empire that would come in the end times. This is the the thing that was taught. Well, way back before I changed it here in the last time we went through, but way back before I used to to teach with the one hang-up in the book of Daniel. All five of his kingdoms, all five of his kingdoms had as their center, as their capital at one point Babylon 
Every single one of them did. Babylon, of course, the capital was? It was Babylon. When the Medes and the Persians took over, they eventually moved their capital over to the city of Babylon. When Alexander the Greek went out and conquered the world, his capital wasn't in Babylon, but after he conquered the world, he came back and then he settled in the area of Babylon and made his capital out of the city of Babylon. Rome never did. And so when I had been teaching it before, I thought, well, when Rome is revived, then this is the, they will make their capital Babylon then. And that's how we, we looked at, at getting past that. But that was not the case because the one thing that was a problem in the book of Daniel when you look at the kingdoms is Daniel's uh, final kingdom, final two kingdoms actually, uh, just didn't quite fit Rome. Because one of the things that they say was uh, that this kingdom would go through, you may remember this, and devour everything. They would devour, they would devour people, they devoured buildings, they devoured gods, they devoured monuments, they did all those things, and Rome never did. Rome could care less about devouring that stuff. They would rather come knock at your door and say, we're Rome, uh, if you want to surrender, you can, if not, we're going to beat you. And uh, some people said, you know what, like Egypt, Egypt said, you know what, we're just going to surrender, and we're going to build a city. Well, actually, they did that with, uh, with um, uh, uh, the Greeks. They built the city of Alexandria. I don't remember if they really fought much with Rome, but um, uh, most of the nations, when they, Rome would come, and they would come calling, they knew how tough Rome was, and they said, we can't defeat Rome, we'll just surrender. And Rome let everything stand, and they let them do everything they wanted to do, and they let them govern themselves. They just had a person in the area to, to watch over, and they would put Roman soldiers in there, and they would collect taxes. As long as you paid your taxes, Rome was happy. You could do, worship any god you want to. You could do anything you wanted to. They didn't care. Just pay your taxes. Even when some nations rebelled, they'd come on in, they subdue the rebellion, and then they put them back in the order that they were. Uh, Jerusalem had rebelled too many times and said, forget it, these guys, there's too rebellious. And they came in the final time and they wiped them out and burned everything down. But that was not their normal course of doing things. But there was a kingdom that did come up after Rome that did destroy everything in their path everything now we spent more time on this in the end times class just kind of re refreshing some of you folks who have been through it before but the kingdom that came up after rome is the kingdom that we uh, uh the, the the islamic caliphate is what came on and that reigned for a long time and they did destroy everything that came in their path but they eventually did fade away but guess what we're seeing the resurgence of? Not Rome. We're seeing the resurgence of the Islamic Caliphate. And you're seeing the resurgence of a lot of Islamic things. Now, if you know your Bible, if you've been through the end times class here, or maybe you've been through some other end times class here, do you remember one of the nicknames for, for um, um, the Antichrist? One of the nicknames is the Assyrian. He's called the Assyrian. Uh, that's not Rome. That's not Roman. He's called the Assyrian. He's also the forerunner for Antichrist comes from what is the, the territory called the King of the North. Now, there's been a whole lot of Bible teachers who go on out and try and tell you the King of the North. Well, North is Russia. That is false. The King of the North refers to the King of the North during the, the Greek Empire. Because when Alexander died, the Greek Empire was broken up into about 16 to 20 uh, uh, leaders 
generals, uh, leaders in the army, and they all fought with each other to establish who was going to be king. And they whittled them down, 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 down. They got down to, I think, seven. They got down to six. They got down to five. They were at five for a while. And they had five kingdoms for a while. And then uh, two of the kingdoms decided to rise up and wipe out one of the kingdoms. And then they had four. Then they had three. And I believe, if I remember uh, correctly, they had two. I know they at least got down to three. But when Daniel comes on, remember how many uh, kingdoms Daniel said it broke up into? Daniel said it broke up into four. And why does Daniel say it broke up into four when it broke up into all these other parts and they had because his focus was who the the empire was when it was four. And so when I we did the class, we went on back and we took a look at what happened between five and four. That was the most important thing for me to learn. What happened between five and four? In the area of five and four, the king who was over the area of Macedonia and the king who was over the king of the north, he was referred to as the king of the north, basically joined forces and decided to gang up on the one in between them. And they took his territory. And they divided that territory up. Some of it went to the, the, the king that was over Macedonia, or the Greek area, and the rest of it went over to the king of the north. I believe the king of the south got a little bit involved, but, um, and he might have gotten some, some things out of that. But that area was, was uh, mostly divided up between those two. Guess what territory that is? Primarily the area of Turkey. Is Turkey in the news? Yep. Now, the king of the north, in case you don't know where the king of the north is, how many people do not know where the king of the north is? Greek empire. King of the north. Don't listen to people who try and tell you what Gog and Magog is. They don't know what they're talking about. I can show you who Gog and Magog is, and it is not Russia. There is no way it can be Russia, because at the time it is written, there, weren't not, there were not people settled in those lands. Gog and Magog are not Russia. They, they're also not the king of the north. The king of the north consists mostly of Syria, Turkey, Iraq, and Iran. Who's in the news right now? All you, if you want to look at who's, who the Antichrist is coming in, the Antichrist cannot show up until you all are pulled out. Can't show up. He wants to, and he is probably in place, but he cannot materialize because the church knows how to spot him and would point him out in a moment. So what has to happen is the church gets pulled out. The people that are left behind, they can't spot him. He gets in. He does what he wants to do. And that's what will we'll come about. There's a lot more in, into that. We don't want to get into, into all that sort of stuff. But this is what Daniel is, is teaching here. And he says, And the people of the prince who is to come. I said all that to let you know who this is. The people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. How many know who destroyed the city and the sanctuary during the time of Jesus? No one wants to answer, I understand. How many would, would, would want to say Rome? Now, here's the problem with it being Rome. This is what most of the people think. Rome destroyed, and the Roman army technically did. Notice the wording. God is very careful in his wording. And the people of the prince who is to come. Isn't that what he says? The people of the prince 
who is to come. They're the ones who shall destroy the city. The people who are the prince who is to come, if they are of the Islamic uh, makeup, if they are of the people of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, that area, what Rome had to do by the time uh, that Jerusalem was destroyed, the Roman army was not made up of Romans. The Roman army, what they would do is they would come in and they would take the people in the local area and they would make their army out of that. So they would not take Israelites and have them be the army in Judah because that would be self-defeating. So they took it from nations around. Guess what nations they took from? Nations of Jordan, nations of Syria, the nations of what is now Iran, what is now Iraq. Even Egyptians might have been pulled into that. They're going to pull other nations. The people of the prince who is to come. And people have gotten lost because they say Rome destroyed. No, the people who were in the army at that time were the people who were the prince to come. They hate Israel. They hated Israel then. Now, you remember the Roman soldiers that were over the crucifixion? They were not Romans. Guess who they were? They were the people of the prince who is to come. Which is why they treated him so ferociously and so viciously. Because they had a true hate for the people of Israel and especially one they would call Messiah. Rome could care less. But the people of the prince who is to come. That's what the word of prophecy says. That's what God came and told Daniel about. Daniel wrote it down. Why do we know that? because Daniel asked the question. The only reason we know that is because Daniel asked the question. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off and not for himself and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Now, we gave you kind of a crash course and all that. We spend a whole lot more time when we go through the end times class, but uh, that'll give you an idea with it anyway. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. For one week. What is the time period of one week? Seven years. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So this is what he's going to do. He's going to make a covenant, a seven-year covenant with them. At the end of it, halfway in between, he is going to break that covenant. Do you remember in the book of Revelation, the, tri the tribulation time is broken up into what? The tribulation and the great tribulation. And the great tribulation is the last three and a half years. And in the book of Revelation, it tells us that the Antichrist comes and sets up his image in the temple and slaughters priests and does all these evil, abominable things. Now, in the area of the king of the north, there was a Grecian empire. It was a breakup of the Grecian empire. They had a ruler who came whose name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus the Great, I believe, was a grandfather. I don't think it was directly his father. I think it was his grandfather. But Antiochus Epiphanes, he came up and he, was, he did almost everything that Antichrist would do. He came in and set up his image in the temple. He slaughtered the priest in the temple. 
but he only lasted for three years, not three and a half. He just misses being it. But the first Antichrist came from the king of the north, the king of the north of the Grecian Empire, which is now the area of Turkey, Iran, Iraq, Syria, all those nations, uh, Jordan, all those nations that are around there. That's the area he comes from. And he is also called in the Word of God the Assyrian because that is the capital, that is the area of the Assyrian Empire. This is where he comes from. Don't be looking for him over in Europe. You're not going to be there. Don't be looking for him over in the States. I don't care how evil of a ruler we get in the States. I don't care how evil of a ruler they get over there in the, in the uh, EU. Uh, it don't matter. They are not them. It will be one from that area. That will be where the Antichrist comes from. Uh, exactly who he is. We don't know just yet. Did we finish all our 27? Yep, we finished all, all those things. So, that's kind of just a run through. But we all only know these things because Daniel asked the question. God knew all this. God had all this information there. But until somebody asked a faith-filled question, a question based on understanding, a question based on knowledge, a question based on faith in God, a, a question that was based on trust in God, a question that understood we have messed up, not God, and that God in His mercy will do... A person who asked the question in this way got this answer. And if you keep on going in the book of Daniel, you all remember that there was a particular vision that was withheld from Daniel. You remember 21 days? 21 days it was the battle. It was sent immediately, but it was withheld for 21 days because he had a battle to get on through. That particular vision is the one who identifies exactly where you will find Antichrist. And that is one reason why it was fought so much more than anything else. Because you go through that vision that he was given and you know even more detail about Antichrist. And again it came because a man prayed and someone asked God some questions on what was going to go on. I want to take you one other place before we get done here. And that is in Matthew chapter 24. We're going to look at three verses. Three verses. I have these, verse, this, these verses burned into my memory. You may have it that way too. You'll sometimes hear me just quote these things because they, I, I'm always thinking about them. These are the questions that they ask. Verse 1, Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They had three questions for Jesus. What will... Tell us, when will these things be? When will these, when will these things you're talking about? When will the temple be destroyed? Because they know the destruction of the temple has to do with the end of the age. They know the that this has to do with Antichrist and they know that Messiah comes in and sets up his kingdom afterwards. So, when will these things be? Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Three questions. 
three questions that, that they ask. Everything that we have from Jesus on the end times comes because one of the twelve disciples, and maybe they all asked the questions together and they just voiced it, one of the twelve disciples came and said to Jesus, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming? End of the end of the age. They asked this question because Jesus had just spoken to them that the temple was going to be destroyed. They know, because of what they learned from Daniel, they know that means the end of the age is coming. So, tell us. We're looking for the end of the age. We want to see Messiah come. We want to see this thing get going. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Those are the three questions they ask. Everything that Jesus answers them has to do with at least one of those questions they ask. Here's the problem people get into with end times is they insert questions that were not asked. There is absolutely nothing in Jesus' teaching that teaches you a thing about the rapture. Not a thing. Because they didn't ask him about the rapture, did they? They asked him about the end of the age, which is the Jewish age, not the church age. They don't know about the church age yet. They're asking about the end of the Jewish age. And we know, because of Paul's writing and Paul's revelation, that there were seven weeks, 62 weeks, and one week. There was no break between the seven week and the 62 weeks, but there was a break between the 69th week and the 70th week. That break is called the church age, which will end. Jesus does not teach one lick about the end of the church age, and yet people will pull things out of his teaching and teach the end of the church age. I'll give you a point on this. Maybe you haven't heard this one just yet. But you remember when Jesus says, and this is the teaching he's teaching this from, two will be on a hill, one will be taken, and one will be left. How many have ever heard that taught as the rapture? That is false. Because if Jesus teaches about a rapture, he is not answering the question, what is the end of the age? He is saying, what is the end of the Jewish age? He says at the end of the Jewish age, two will be on a hill, one will be taken, and one will be left. Now, we have always interpreted, people have always interpreted this in this way. The Christian is taken. The unbeliever is left. Look at his questions. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age? They didn't ask that. If they didn't ask it, how can Jesus answer a question that they didn't ask? He's opened things up for confusion. The end of the Jewish age the Word of God tells us, in fact, that Jesus is the one who teaches this, there is a separation of nations, judgment of nations. There is a separation of the sheep and the goats. And he will say to those on his right hand, and he will say to those on his left hand. Remember that? Depart from me. Yeah. The way you understand this verse of Scripture is not that the Christian is removed from the earth. The unbeliever is removed from the earth. The Christian, the one who believes in God, stays behind and enters into the next age. What is the next age after the tribulation? After the Jewish age, what comes? The millennial reign. That's how that verse of Scripture is to be understood. Now, are Christians taken from the earth? Absolutely. Paul tells us that. He calls it harpazo. <laughs> That's his word for it. The rapture. 
when God comes and snatches away those that are His to take them out of the 70th week. I don't teach that we're going to be here for that. We, are, we have to be removed. The Word of God says, Paul says, we must be removed. The Thessalonians were taught, hey, Paul was wrong. You're in the rapture now. They wrote to Paul and Paul said, no, look, I made it clear to you. And he, in 2 Thessalonians, he makes it abundantly clear. And we still have messed that one up. He says, the rapture cannot happen. He says, the harpazo, this great snatching away, cannot happen unless he is removed. And people have errantly taught, that's the Holy Spirit. That is wrong. He is not the only he that's in the Word of God. Now, people look at the church as a she. I think we went over this a little, a little while ago, but I'll go over it again. People look at the church as a she. And she is a she when she is the bride of Christ. But if Christ is the head, he is the head of what? The body of Christ. In the church's role as the body of Christ, you are not a she, you are a he, because the head is a he, so therefore the body has to be a he. God does not create freaks. If the head's a he, the body is a he. But the bride is a she. Why does God do it? Because God can. He's looking at two different things. In your role as the church, in your militant role as the army of God, you are a he and you are in the thick of the fight. In the end, when we come in as the bride of Christ, you are a she and you are his bride. No matter whether you are a he or a she here. As a body of Christ, you are a he, and until he is removed, the body of Christ, until the body of Christ is removed, the uh, Antichrist cannot show himself, cannot reveal himself. Because if he does, the he will spot him. And the he will point him out. Everything that we have on Jesus came because either all twelve got a spokesman or somebody in there got a good question and asked these three questions. When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming end of the end of the age? When will this happen? And so Jesus taught on the end times. We have no other encounter that Jesus taught on the end times to to the depth that he taught here except when they asked the question. Which leads me to believe how many other things did he not teach on that he would have if somebody asked him the question. Somebody would have just asked him a faith-filled question that was based on understanding and knowledge. So let's take a look at some things we can do to improve our questions. Now, let's go back to our first one. Are we there yet? What if we change that question a little bit? What if we change it in this way? What if the, the child in the back seat, instead of saying, are we there yet? Instead of saying that, what if they say, uh, Mom, Dad, how many miles to go until we get to wherever? Um, 300. We have 300 miles to go to get there. Okay. Uh, how fast are we traveling? Well, we're going right now at about 60 miles an hour. Okay. Uh, how many more stops do we have on the way? Well, I, you know, we'll probably have maybe uh, two more stops. 
maybe 30 minutes each. Now you have everything that you need that you can figure out that answer yourself. How many parents would get tired of that question? That's a lot more questions. But I'm not getting this irritating voice in the back. I'm getting somebody who wants to put their mind to work. I'm not getting lazy questions. I'm getting somebody who wants to process things, who wants to figure it out. Now, why does it do, do this? Why does it go over here? How come it happens over here? You know, Chenzo's getting to that age. Oh, man, he, he's asking good questions like this. He wants to figure stuff out. And so he'll ask questions. Why does this, when he does that, he has my full attention. Full attention. We want to know. Well, why does it do this? Well, it does this because of this. And then I'll ask another question on that. Well, and then if I do this, this will happen. I love that his mind is just working. I love feeding that mind. Or he can ask me 10,000 questions. I don't care. Each one's different. Each one is based on what he understood from the question before. And I get excited for that. But if somebody just keeps asking the same question, when's dinner? How long till we eat? When are we having? They can get frustrated with all those kind of questions. But when you get somebody who's asking questions because I want to learn and I want to take what I'm learning and I want to process it and I want to be able to ask another question. So, so Dad, what you're saying is we'll be there in about six hours? We'll be there in about five hours? We'll be there in about... and you, Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. See, then you get excited because you're seeing the, the, the working, the minds are working. God gets excited when he sees that we take information in we process it. We understand it. We hear things in our spirit. And then we ask questions based on that. He gets excited. Because how long did it take him to answer, Daniel? He answered him right away, didn't he? How long did it take Jesus to answer the disciples' question here? Didn't take him long at all, did he? Can you think of some questions the Pharisees asked that he uh, just didn't answer at all? But you see, if you ask God the questions the way that God wants them asked, you'll get an answer right away. If you ask a lazy question, if you ask a question like the Pharisees did, if you ask questions like some of the Israelites did in the wilderness, you may get an answer and you may not like it. Our questions must contain these qualities. I'll give you the four. They're probably going to put some more in here, but I'm getting, just work on these four. First off, faith. Your questions must involve faith. You need to believe in what God has said. You have to have faith. Second, patience. A lot of times we're asking questions and we have no patience. We'll get more into these things as we see. Uh, third, contentment. Too many times Christians are asking questions because they're discontent with what they have, where they are, what they're doing. Fourth, thanksgiving. Be thankful for all that your God is doing that you can see and that you cannot see and all that your God has done in the past. Be thankful. Too often Christians, we ask questions directly opposite of this. We ask questions from doubt. We ask questions from impatience, from discontentment, from complaining. Ask questions from what you know and understand, not ones of doubt and distrust. Like we said, if Daniel or the Twelve don't ask their questions, we have some holes in our end times understanding. We'll look at some places in the Word of God that I think you will see 
if only somebody had asked this question, we might have that answer. You will benefit from good questions that other people have asked. Don't we all benefit from the good questions that the disciples asked? Don't we all benefit from the good questions that Daniel asked? I can benefit from questions that good people asked and the good questions they came up with. Now, do you want to just benefit from other people's questions or do you want to get the benefit directly? You want to be some someone that this all... that God says, what do you want to know? Now, mature people, we just got finished looking at the seven qualities of maturity. Mature people can ask great questions. But questions asked from immaturity will fail us. Just take a look at the seven qualities of maturity we looked at. Steadfast. Does your question demonstrate not moving off faith in God? Or is your question based on your moving all around? Your wishy-washy. Well, God, I thought you said, well, I thought you would do... Mature people ask questions because they're out of calm. Peacefulness. Mature people have questions that are filled with joy, that are grateful, patient. And mature people ask questions that leave the person you asked encouraged. Think of it this way. Have your mind go through. Think of some of the stories in the New Testament. Was Jesus ever frustrated with questions people asked him? You ever get irritated at some of the questions that they asked him? I'll give you one. Where does your authority come from? Did Jesus like that question? No, he wasn't real keen on answering it, was he? He says, well, look, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. And they didn't want to answer his. So he said, well, then neither will I answer your question. Yeah. He wasn't very encouraged from that, was he? There's going to be some other times we're going to see this too. But when the disciples asked this question, was he encouraged? Man, he went on a little little rant there of teaching some stuff on end times. It was just pouring out of him. Other times people would come and they would ask him questions and things would pour out of him. He was encouraged by that. As a mature person, you can ask questions that encourage you. And also ask the questions that discourage you. How many can think of going over homework with your son or daughter? Didn't we just go over this yesterday? Don't you remember anything? You're not, you're not feeling encouraged. But when you begin to see that they remember the stuff that we just went over and begin to apply it and begin to utilize it, maybe you made a mistake. Oh, here's where your mistake is. But you're remembering. See, you're doing all this stuff like we talked about. You become encouraged. Good questions can encourage and good questions can discourage. If I learn how to ask questions that will get God's attention, I can be encouraged because of the answer and God can be encouraged because of the question. Would you all stand up with me? Father, your word is filled with people who would ask questions. Some of those questions were quickly answered and some of those questions were avoided. Help us to learn the heart of our God that we can ask those questions that encourage an answer, that encourage the response. 
not only did you send a response, but you said cause him to understand, help him to understand, get them to understand what's going on here. I want them to know. They asked the question. I want them to know the answer. And God, you had the same view for us. There are many things out there that you want us to learn, that you want us to know, but no one has formed a question yet. But you're looking. You left clues all in your word. We'll spend the time and study. Understand what's there. Formulate a question. I thank you that you help us to do it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We talked about before, it may not be that people in the a long time ago, didn't have planes and didn't have ways to soar up into the atmosphere and see that the earth was round, but God left a whole lot of clues to let people know that it was round. And eventually, people began to put those questions together. They began to piece together things, and they found out that the earth wasn't the center. It was the sun. And they found out how the other planets involved. And they found out how other solar systems were involved with ours. The clues were there. They've always been there. But people had to gather them, understand them, and ask questions. And then get the understanding from that, and then ask more questions. If you're stuck in a place in your life, in your spiritual life, it may just be that you haven't asked the questions that God is waiting for you to ask. That's why we're going to spend some time in the Word on this. Look at how can I ask better questions? Because I sure want to get better answers. I sure want to understand things more. 